Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Payments Podium. I'm Kevin Olson, the Payments Professor. I want to welcome you all today. I've got an exciting guest on to talk about an important subject when it comes to checks. That important subject, it's called holder in due course. How many of you have you ever even heard of the term holder in due course? Have you wondered, what does holder in due course, what does it even mean? Or have you ever been in a dispute having to question what is holder in due course? How is it going to work out? Who's going to be held liable? Maybe you were the one ended up losing funds because of the decision of because of how holder in due course works. Or maybe you're one of those studying for that blessed NCP exam. Love the NCP exam. Certification everybody should go get. If you're going to be working in checks, if you're going to be working in check disputes, if you're going to be working to get your NCP, you've got to understand holder in due course. So today, I'm so happy to say for this session, for this podcast episode, I've got Dal Bolt from Echo. Dal, I want to welcome you to the Payments Podium. Thank you, Kevin. And, and Dal, again, you work with Echo, is that correct? What do you do there? What's your title? I'm the Director of Education for Echo. What I am uh, involved primarily is developing an education platform for all of our members. And if you're not an Echo member, we make this available as an education subscriber. It's a whole library of check education that uh, deals with the fundamentals. And also, if you are an NCP, you can use these sessions for continuing ed credit. So at ECHO, what we want to do is support our membership with education and support. And that means that they also call us for any questions they have. We call it the 411-911 call for information, call for help. So that's what I do. And ECHO is the Electronic Check Clearinghouse Organization. They are, without a doubt, the experts in check processing. And Dal, how long have you been involved in actual, well, the banking industry or check processing itself? <laughs> you mean in actual years? I don't know that I want to share the actual number of years. Let's just say decades. Uh, I started in banking when I got out of high school in the 70s. And uh, I've been involved with banking ever since. Back in those days, the only way payments were, uh, were done was either by cash or by check. So um, we've certainly seen a lot of changes, but check remains and the information and knowledge about it has migrated. We all know that. So one of my jobs is to try to ensure that we are properly managing our payments risk when it comes to check by properly educating those people who are dealing with checks. All right, and I love the properly educating. And here on the Payments Podium, we like to focus in on the past, the present, and the possibilities of whatever subject we're talking about. And today, I brought you on because I know you're an expert in holder in due course. And it's also one of those things that when it comes to holder in due course, I know it can be confusing. And I know I've worked in checks for a couple of decades myself. And there was a time a few years ago that I remember sitting with you, I believe it was in Dallas, and you started explaining Holder in Due Course in a way that just set me on fire. I mean, it's like, I got it, but I really got it after talking to you. So if we could, could you maybe give some history of where did Holder in Due Course come from? What, 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 is, what is even Holder in Due Course or HIDC, as some people may say? Holder in due course comes from the fact that check is a paper 
payment instrument. It's all about paper and uh, check is governed by the Uniform Commercial Code, Articles 3 and 4. You'll find everything you need to read about Holder in due course in Article 3, 302. And the idea is that it's a paper instrument. So the intermediary in the negotiation of that paper instrument, and it's a demand instrument, I should emphasize that, the intermediary can be a person who has no party to the check, but simply negotiates it for the payee. But if that check gets returned back to that entity, the holder in due course doctrine protects them. So let's walk through a specific example. Kevin is my brother-in-law and he also needs a job and I need to have my house paid. So Kevin paints my house and I give him a check for it. But Kevin's not a particularly great house, house painter and I'm not really thrilled with the job that he did. So I call my bank and I put a stop payment. In the meantime, Kevin has gone down to the local bar where he hangs out and he has cashed that check. The bartender is a, also a check casher and he cashes the check for, for Kevin because Kevin's a, a, a customer of his. When the check gets returned, stop payment, it doesn't go back to Kevin. It goes back to the bartender, who didn't do anything wrong. All they did was cash the check for Kevin. The dispute between uh, the parties regarding the payment are between me and Kevin. Kevin now got his money from the bartender but the bartender's account was debited because that check was returned payment stop. What Holder in Due Course provides is a, an avenue of recourse for that bartender to enforce that demand instrument against me, the maker, the drawer of that check. And the whole point of Holder in Due Course is to protect that entity in between who negotiated the check, but is not a party to the reason for the payment or the dispute. And that's when seen from that light, it makes a lot more sense and it provides a lot more protection to any entity that is in the habit of cashing checks. Right, let, me, let me make sure I got this straight. So let's say Dal has hired the Payments Professor Painting Company that has just suddenly been created because apparently we're not doing good enough in payments education. We're looking for some side income. So the Payments Professor Painting Company, which ironically, I do do some painting on the weekends with a friend of mine just because I find it quite relaxing. Um, but the Payments Professor Painting Company, paint your house, and I do indoor and trim. I don't do exteriors. That would be why I wouldn't have done a very good job. But you pay me by check. I run down to the local bar, buy everybody a round of drinks, and get the bartender to go ahead and, you know, cash the check for me and pay for the round that I bought for everybody. Maybe get me some fries on the side, too. And then you decided, hey, payments professors painting didn't do that good of a job. And you put a stop payment on the check. Now, I've got my money, but the check goes back against the bartender and against his financial institution or their financial institution. And they suddenly do an adjustment, debit the money out of the bartender's account. And the bartender is left, let's say $2,500 in the hole. And I still got my money, but 
the bartender's got nothing, right? Is that, that what basically what you're saying is that's the problem that has happened? That's exactly right. Now, a listener might say, well, why doesn't the bartender go after you? And he certainly can. He can do all of the pressure that you see. He might take a copy of that check um, <clears throat> payable to you uh, with a big return payment stopped and tape it up behind the cash register so that everybody can know that you're a deadbeat. That was a common practice in the past. But you're a moving target, and you don't go back to that bar anymore. You disappeared. Right. Uh, so who is he going to go after? Well, Holder in due course allows him to go after the maker, the drawer of the check. And the principle there is, hey, you wrote a check to Kevin. I cashed it. You didn't like the job that Kevin did, so you put a stop payment on it. That has nothing to do with me. I shouldn't suffer a loss because you don't like the job you did or that Kevin did for you. So Holder in due course allows that bartender to demand payment from the maker, the drawer of that check. So so bartender basically does can has an option of coming after me and saying, hey, Kevin, you still or payments professor, you still owe us money. Or because of holder in due course, they can go back and say, Dal, we don't care what kind of paint job he did. You wrote the check, you gotta pay the check. Is that right? That's exactly right. And and where it becomes more important is again, a, a listener might think, well, why doesn't that bartender just pursue that? But let's broaden this. So let's talk about large check cashing companies and large, large big box companies that are in the business of offering those kinds of services. They know and their attorneys know the principle of holder in due course and they will not hesitate to enforce that when checks that those check cashers have cashed are returned back to them for whatever reason. Uh, and, and that's kind of the principle of holder in due course. If you are someone who writes a check to someone and that check gets dishonored, either because you put a stop payment on or it was returned as NSF, the entity that accepted that piece of paper has recourse against you. So you still, even if you put a stop payment on something, doesn't mean you're not responsible. It doesn't alleviate your responsibility to the check, right? That's exactly right. So Kevin and I made an agreement. He was going to paint my house and I was going to give him money. Well, I don't like what he did, but that's up to me and Kevin to work it out. It does not, by my putting a stop payment, does not break our contract. Kevin and I had an agreement, we had a contract, and I can't just put a stop payment on and then that, that contract is gonna go away. It isn't. That check that Kevin took from me that got returned back to him is now his tool to recover from me. All right, now real quick too, I, I know in check processing, and again, if you know somebody listening to this is studying for the NCP, they might ask, well, is there a difference between holder in due course and holder? I, I believe I've heard that term used as well, or that's a term that is going to be on the exam, or that's a term that we see in the industry. So what, what would be the difference between holder versus holder in due course? Well, a holder is the entity who actually gets the check. If I write a check to you, 
um, and I give it to you, you become the holder. If I'm a holder in due course, there are very specific components to becoming a holder in due course. I need to accept that check in good faith for value without notice that the instrument is overdue. And what that means is under UCC, an instrument is overdue if it's 90 days or more from the issue date. It does not make it non-negotiable. It simply is identified in UCC as overdue. I'm going to stop here a second because you want to keep in mind that UCC is about contract law. So articles three and four, which address check, are using the language of contract law. So the holder in due course takes the instrument for value in good faith. It's not greater than 90 days. He has no notice that anybody else has any party to the check. For example, the check is not payable to Kevin and someone else, and that check has not been returned. So that entity who takes that check under those conditions is, and, and uh, has that check returned back to them can enforce their holder in due course right. So they've got to meet all that criteria to become a holder in due course. So you, you can be holding on to a check and you're the holder, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're the holder in due course because unless you've got the accept in good faith, and I, I'm doing the air quotes, I'm sure you did too, or value, and without notice that the instrument was overdue, then you're not a holder in due course, you're just a holder, right? That's right, that's right. If I, uh, if I have a check payable to me, I'm the holder of that check, and I bring it into your bar and you cash it, but that check was written 95 days ago, and that check gets returned to you for any reason, you're not a holder in due course because when you accepted that check, did not meet all the criteria for being holder in due course. All right. So the, another thing you said too is you mentioned check cashing companies and you mentioned that their attorneys know how this works. So we've really covered what is holder in due course. We've covered a couple situations and how it happens. We've built up, this is the past. This is where it's come from. What's it mean today though? I know, you know, historically we used to have trillions of checks and we still have very high check volume. Checks are not going away, folks. Anybody who thinks they are, I, I don't believe that. There's no data to support that. There's still billions of checks being written. And I know that historically there used to be a lot of holder in due course claims. But today, even like with remote deposit capture, with the ability to process checks faster, do we still see holder in due course claims taking place? You know, it's... Uh, with RDC, Remote Deposit Capture, Holder in Due Course has taken on a whole new life. Remember that before we exchanged electronic images of checks, we exchanged paper. So the entity who accepted the paper was, and met all of the conditions, was the holder in due course. Now, I am remotely depositing a check. So let's walk through some scenarios. Okay. I have a check payable to me. I do a remote deposit capture to my bank of that check. And then I take that paper check over to a large national check casher. Oh, you're not supposed to do that, Dal. That, you're only supposed to deposit it to one location. 
That's right. And I figure out that, hey, I still have this paper check in my hand. I wonder what will happen. So I go to check cashing company and by golly, they give me the money. So now I know I've been paid twice for that. So what do I do to my bank account? I take the money out. So now I got paid twice. All right, the person who wrote me the check and if we had an agreement for something and I fulfilled my side of the agreement, he fulfilled his side by paying me, but he paid me twice because that check is going to pay against his account twice because of my action. So when he notices that, he calls his bank and says, hey, you charged against my account the same check twice. And his bank says, sorry, credits him back because they know they have to. Reg CC has a warranty that all parties make to all parties that no one is going to be asked to pay the same check twice. Okay, you said that was Reg CC, right? I've always called that the no double dip rule. And that comes from Regulation CC because we mentioned UCC3 and 4. And one of the things that makes checks fun is there's different things that cover different areas. So in this case, that no double dip or not having to pay twice that is going to protect the check writer, that's Reg CC, correct? That's right. That's right. You're going to find those warranties in Regulation CC. Regulation CC is a federal regulation that governs the availability of um, check deposits. It governs the exchange and the payments of now electronic checks. UCC, Uniform Commercial Code, is uh, approved by each state. So it's state law that was designed to ensure standardization with regard to how contracts and agreements are dealt with. So those two bodies of law govern CHECK, Reg CC and UCC. And that's where UCC assigns that holder in due course position to those entities who are cashing checks. They're providing a service and it's designed essentially to protect them from loss when that check is designed. Okay, now wait a minute. I want to go back though. You've taken this check. You deposited via remote deposit capture to one financial institution. You've then taken this check to a large check processor and you've deposited it there too. In the meantime, after getting your money from the check processor, after the remote deposit capture deposit appeared in your account, you went and wiped out, closed down that account so that it's gone. But the check writer, they have been debited twice for this check. They have then called their financial institution and said, hey, I paid this twice. Reg CC says, you don't have to pay it twice. Their financial institution, if I'm correct, is right now sitting here having paid that checkout for their account holder twice for what you've done. Uh, Aren't they out some money? What are they supposed to do? Yes, they are. So the next thing that the paying bank is going to do, uh, they're going to do an adjustment back to one of those two banks of first deposit that accepted either the image or the paper and forwarded it on for collection to the paying bank. The paying bank got that check twice from two different banks. So 
they can do an adjustment. It's called a paid adjustment. That is an adjustment when the item has already been paid. Well, so, you, you said they could do that back to one of the banks of first deposit because they're both banks of first deposit. It's just two separate ways that that same check flowed. It doesn't matter which one they go back to? They can go back to either. Okay. Now, the, the challenge is, can the paying bank determine who accepted the paper versus what bank of first deposit accepted that check for deposit through RDC? Generally, a paying bank isn't going to be able to tell that. When they can't tell that, they're just going to do an adjustment for either one. Doesn't matter. They can do the first one or the second one. That adjustment is going to provide that paying bank with a credit to offset their loss, and the debit is going to go to the bank that accepted one of those duplicate presentments. When that bank receives that adjustment, typically what they're going to do is debit their depositor because. Uh, per their account agreement, all deposits should be considered provisional, and if anything is returned or adjusted, the bank of first deposit has the right to do that. So they got a paid adjustment on one of their depositors' accounts. So they remove that from that account. And that okay, wait, 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 Dell. You said that you closed your account. So if they go back to the RDC deposit, your account's been closed. You mean they go back go. to that financial institution where you've closed your account? There and you go. They're going to accept this back? So if I'm the paying bank, I don't know that and I don't care. So I adjust back to, as it turns out, the RDC bank, who now is suffering a loss because they can't collect from their depositor. Well, too bad for them. They accepted it as RDC. Now, if I am the paying bank and I adjusted back to the bank that accepted the paper or whose customer accepted the paper and that bank, let's just use bank as an example, gets this paid adjustment, suffers a loss because they cannot recover from their depositor. Because they accepted the paper, they now have recourse against the RDC BOFD by virtue of Reg CC's RDC indemnity. And there are conditions to be met. But when that entity, and here we get back to accepting the paper, when the, when the bank that accepted the paper for deposit suffers a loss because that item is adjusted or returned back to them, and they're unable to recover from their depositor, they have recourse against the RDC bank of first deposit. And that's where they're going to make the claim, an RDC indemnity claim, because every bank of first deposit that accepts for deposit items through RDC indemnifies any other bank that accepts the paper against loss if that item is returned or adjusted back to them as paid. And if anybody doesn't know what indemnity means or indemnify, that basically means I'm not going to hold you responsible. 
that you're free and clear on it in that case. That's what an indemnity claim basically is, right? Yep. So here's where Holder in due course adds to the drama. So now I'm the entity that accepted the paper and I'm suffering loss. And maybe I can't find out who the RDC bank of first deposit is, or I'm the customer who deposited the paper with the paper depository bank. I am now at a loss. So now I have that item charged back to me. I have holder in due course rights. I can go. You got the paper, right? That's right, because I accepted the paper and I met all of the conditions, took it in good faith. It's not overdue. Uh, I noticed there's no alterations, no other party has a, um, a claim to it. That gives me the right to pursue the maker of that check. And that's where RDC and HIDC are problematic. I'm a bank that offers remote deposit capture to my customers because it's of value and it's efficient to them. But I have no control over that piece of paper. So when my customer inevitably decides he's going to defraud someone, because I'm accepting that check, for deposit through remote deposit capture, I, the RDC Bank of First Deposit, have to indemnify any other bank that accepts that paper from loss when that item is returned back to them because it was paid uh, or returned or adjusted back to them as paid. All right, I've got to get into the future now because we definitely have outlined where this is an issue. I mean, we started off with HIDC claims and here we are now RDC indemnity claims in this whole process. And let's start looking at, you know, if you're a financial institution that happens to be listening to this, you're probably going, well, what do I do? How do I protect myself? What do I need to go do if I get back to my institution to be able to keep this from happening to me? So Dal, I would say to you, uh, and it's a question I get from a lot of people, what are the risk controls or the policies or the procedures or what goes into agreements? What can institutions that are being caught in this situation do to protect themselves from being caught in this situation? Yeah, and that's, that's an ex the excellent question. A bank that offers remote deposit capture is putting themselves in a position of risk. Now, FFIEC, the Federal Financial Institution Examination Council, came out with some guidance way back in 2008, said, first of all, think of RDC as a new transaction delivery system, not a new service. Why that's important is every bank that offers RDC needs to understand that you're opening a virtual teller window. None of your obligations with regard to the acceptance or transferring of that checks change, but you no longer have the physical scrutiny of that check. So when you're offering that kind of remote and somewhat anonymous transaction delivery system to your customers, you need to know who your customers are. 
I say this all the time, the criteria for qualifying for RDC as a customer should not be that I have a pulse. My bank needs to ensure that I am worthy of it. It's the same as if they give me a credit card. And my agreement with my bank, if they're offering me RDC, should hold me accountable if I play games and should make me accountable if I cause loss. So what I say to every bank that offers remote deposit capture is know your customer, set some qualification criteria, Definitely consider say, setting daily and weekly item deposit limits and total deposit limits so that you're not at risk for accepting a $100,000 item that turns out to be a worthless piece of paper. Consider that you will restrict the types of items that you will accept for remote deposit capture. Will you accept a cashier's check? Will you accept a redeposited item? Consider all of those things that you have to do to mitigate your risk in your upfront agreement and your ongoing measuring and monitoring of your remote deposit capture customer and your program. FFIEC again says do a risk assessment, measure, monitor, look at reports. So this RDC product service delivery system that you offer should not just operate independently of any oversight. You need to have customer qualification criteria and you, your agreement needs to have some teeth. Okay, you just said basically a, a mouthful that if people want to really protect themselves in this situation, number one is KYC, know their customer. Number two is part of knowing your customer is qualifying what they're capable of doing and determining what they're capable of doing. Number three, you said deposit limits. I'm a big fan of this one too. Having those daily, per item, weekly, even monthly limits, whatever your systems are capable of. Number four, determine what types of checks you're gonna allow to be deposited via remote deposit capture. If you're gonna limit it to just personal checks, business checks, cashier's checks, you may or may not want, of course, are redeposited items. Number five, what's going to be in your agreement? You know, especially in this case, when they go to close the account, be careful of those outstanding checks. Then you said, have the monitoring, staying on top of it, looking at the reports. And I always tell people, do you even know what reports you're getting and what's in the reports? <laughs> and you qualified that by making sure the FDIC says you got to do this, that this needs to be in there. Or actually, I know FFIEC says that that's got to be there as well. And I'm pretty sure NCUA says you need to be doing all this as well. Would that be correct? Yeah, the, the regulators, you know, FFIEC is the, uh, the governing body or rather the uh, examination council of all of the regulators. So what their guidance is, is to all of the regulators. So as I said, FFIEC says measure, monitor, watch what you're doing, know your customer, et cetera, et cetera. So all of the regulators are going to take that approach when they're having a look at your RDC system. And if they're seeing losses due to duplicates, they're going to dig a little deeper and wonder what your criteria is. And they might ask you for a copy of your risk assessment. 
Wow, that's that is a lot. All right, Dow, we have covered a lot of information here. Uh, started off with uh, payments. Professor walks into a bar and cashes a check for a bad painting job, to ending up to what we can do to be able to protect ourselves from getting in these cases where we have the RDC indemnity or we have the holder in due course claim. I really greatly appreciate you being on the podcast, being able to help really clear up a lot of the fog that comes or the confusion that comes with understanding what is a holder in due course versus a holder, or even working with the RDC indemnity claims. As we're closing out here, are there any comments you'd like to leave people with? And is there any information that maybe I could get from the ECHO website that would be able to help me to understand holder in due course or be able to understand RDC indemnity claims or Maybe even if I want to become a member of ECHO, any information that you could leave us with on that as some closing remarks? Absolutely. If you go to echo.org, and that's E-C-C-H-O dot O-R-G, go to our education page and you'll see our current library, and that's a dynamic library. It's changing all the time. Uh, we have sessions on uh, specifically on Holder in Due Course on RDC, on the RDC indemnity, and how the holder in due course impacts remotely deposited items. Um, as a, If you're an ECHO member, those sessions and the on-call support are part of your member benefits. If you're not and you're looking for education training, we offer what's called education subscribers. And for a very low fee, annual fee, you have access not only to our education library, but also to our on-call support. What I think is critical when I see the news, I read the stories about the various types of legis uh, litigation that is occurring between financial institutions and the losses that they are incurring, Education is one of your strongest risk management tools. If your frontline staff, if your operations staff, if the staff that takes or processes checks understands the warranties and indemnities that you make, understands the regulations and the laws that govern checks, you are way ahead of your risk mitigation application and I strongly recommend that everybody ensure that they're up to speed on checks because as Kevin says trillions of dollars of check payments are still going through the system so it's not dead yet. All right well Dal thank you so much for being on the show again we've got to focus on holder in due course RDC indemnity claims. We're working to do all we can to bring what you guys want. All of our listeners, we're here for you to be able to provide what you want when it comes to education and electronic payments, which of course does include remote deposit capture in this case. What are the issues? What is the confusion? What would you like to have on the payments podium? If there's somebody you would like to have as a guest on the payments podium, maybe you'd like to be on the payments podium, or there's a subject you'd like to have discussed on the payments podium, email me, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com, and I'll do my best to make sure that we get them on the podcast. I hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast. Again, Dal, thank you so much for being on here. Class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.